Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Tuesday afternoon, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I hope you're having a great day. hope you're being safe out there with the threat of rain. Uh, what we do every day at 4 o'clock here on KSLR AM 630, the word, is to take your phone calls and answer your questions. What we hope is that we can make it easier for you to find Jesus. All you have to do is call us, 210 210- Three four zero ninety five eighty five. That's three four zero ninety five eighty five. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Numerically, it's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, remember, the safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of your phone and the KSLR free mobile app. Uh, There'll be a banner at the top of your device. It says, call now. Hit that. You'll be connected directly to the studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Let me go to my first question from our mobile app. This one is from Nacho. Uh, he says, who are the seven spirits of God, or what exactly is the sevenfold spirit of God in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5? And that verse says, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Um, in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Uh, Nacho, this is a very Jewish reference uh, in the Old Testament to... Uh, the mention in Isaiah chapter 11 of the seven uh, spirits of God. In verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. This is Isaiah chapter 11. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God, and he will delight in the fear of God. Um The sevenfold spirit, seven is a number of perfection or completion in the Bible. And so what, what we're talking about is the fullness of God's spirit. Now we know that the Father is fully God, Jesus is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. Not three gods, but one God in three persons. Well, what it's saying here is that the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, contains all of the attributes of both the Father and the Son. They are identical except in personhood and in ministry. And uh, the sevenfold um, Spirit of God is mentioned uh, three other times in the book of Revelation, but beyond uh, chapter 1, verse 4, and chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, it's just the idea of perfection, completeness. Uh, all of those attributes are characteristics and attributes of God. So that is exactly what we're being told here. It is the fullness of God it is uh, not sure one of the other proofs 
of the deity of God the Holy Spirit. So that's what the sevenfold spirit of God is all about. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question anonymously. Oh, this is a million dollar question. How do we enforce discipline on our teens? They don't want to listen to us. You know, anonymous, a couple of things. And I'm going to be really, really direct here. And I hope, if nothing else, people that listen to this program and call in or write in with questions uh, will we'll know that they're going to get a direct answer. Uh, too many of our teens think they're in charge of their lives. And I think what we've got to do is we've got to enforce the idea here that, look, I'm the parent, you're not. You're going to do what I say. This is my house. It belongs to the Lord. We're going to do things His way. And so you have to enforce discipline. You have to do it consistently, and you have to do it lovingly. Now, I'm not an advocate of of spanking your grown children. I think at some point they get too old to turn over your knee or to ask them to bend over with the paddle. Um, But discipline has to be consistent. Let me also say, since you said we, and you're talking about a husband and a wife, Um, You have to be on the same page. Your kids will sniff out a weakness, uh, a a difference, faster than you can imagine. So you've got to be on the same page. And the way you do that is you simply decide once and for all that what we're going to do is use the Bible as our reference. We need to parent in the style of God the Father, who is the perfect parent. And God never disciplines in anger. God never uses uh, corporal punishment in anger. Um, God never is inconsistent, depending on how he feels one day this, another day that. So none of that matters at all. What we've got to do is say, this is the standard that we're going to enforce here in Scripture. Now, here's our problem, Anonymous. We've got kids who shut their bedroom doors, and parents feel like they have to knock to go in. What you got to do is then make them understand, this is your home. You go where you want, when you want. They have no say-so in the matter. They have no vote. When it comes to standards of behavior, again, they have no vote. This is the way it's going to be. And, you know, especially with teenagers, you don't have a whole bunch of time left with them. So if you've got a 14-year-old you know, roughly speaking, you've got four years to show them that the, the discipline of God is loving, it's corrective, but it's also gentle and gracious. And the only way you can do that is to be consistent in your application of it. I don't know why, and I'm not exactly sure when, that it happened that kids started being considered when it comes to the standards of the home. I grew up in a different time. I realized that. But one thing that never changes is God, nor is, does his word change. And so what we do is we say this is the way it's going to be. I've got some parents in our church that do such a great job. And the kids, as they grow older, they realize that this is the way it's going to be. And moms and dads, you have the power to make your kids' lives um, really, really great, uh, a place where there's joy and a place where uh, they can earn your trust, a place where they can exercise freedom. But th- those privileges are earned, not given. But you also have the power, the authority, given by God to make the rest of their teenagers miserable if they don't want to follow the rules. So things like doing homework, things like Um, not being on social media. And I'm going to say this again, and I know all over the people listening to this are shaking their head. You cannot allow your children unsupervised access to social media. You just can't. Whenever you send your child into their bedroom for the night with a cell phone, you're sending them in there with an instrument of destruction. The enemy is going to use it to destroy them. And your kids, when they've got a phone, they've got apps that help them get around your restrictions. You think you know what they're watching, but you don't. What you've got to do is you've got to be consistent. Last thought here. The most important thing, moms and dads, you can do 
to consistently discipline your kids is this. Make sure your walk with Jesus is thriving and vibrant. Make sure that your kids don't find hypocrisy. It doesn't mean... It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Nobody expects that. But it means when you're not, you sit down with your kids and say, you know, mom blew it or dad blew it. And I'm really, really sorry, but I'm going to do better. That's what being real is. It's also important, when I said vibrant, thriving, it means the kids in your home, they have to see that you have joy in your life. You're a grouch, if you're down in the dumps all the time, why would they want anything to do with your Jesus? Now, you can't make your kids believe. But believe me, you can make your kids obey. That's the authority of as a parent. And the world that we live in is trying to strip that authority away from us. And you're going to refuse to let that happen. In your home, you're in charge. And of course, they're going to know that Jesus is really in charge. You're just representing him. So it doesn't matter whether they want to listen to you or not. The only thing that matters is who's in charge. As long as you're paying the rent, you're buying them clothes, you're providing food, especially if you have teenage boys, that could run you into the poorhouse. You're the one responsible to God. We're all going to stand before God and give account of exactly how we did with the gifts of children that God entrusted to us. You know, I'll give you one more thought here before I move on to the next anonymous question. When I got saved, now I was a dad who was at work most of the time. I tried to make special things that my kids did, especially sports things, but but I worked 100-hour weeks routinely. When I got saved, my, my sons were 18 and 16, and I called a family meeting. We never had family meetings in my home. But I called a family meeting and I said, I'm just here to tell you that I met Jesus. I got saved. And now my life is going to be spent following him. I don't know what that looks like yet. I don't know what it means. But here's what I want to tell you. I want you to know. Everything I've ever taught you is wrong. The motives are wrong. My heart was wrong. Even the methods were wrong. You should have seen the look on my, my boys' faces. And I said, but here's what I promise you. When I find out what's right, I'm brand new in this Jesus thing. When I find out what's right, I'll tell you what's right. And then we can do it together. And see, if after that my life didn't change, it would have meant nothing. But my kids were able to watch my life change before their very eyes. It was night and day different. And that's the way it ought to be in every Christian home. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. It says, I'm not being critical asking this question, I promise. I appreciate your ministry so much. My question is that you take our questions and make the answers seem simple. I can understand them. Yet when I talk to others, they always say it's not so simple. So how do you make things simple and consistent. Uh, you know, Anonymous, I don't, I don't think there's any real key to that other than believing what the Word says. You know, one of the things that I realized, and remember, I'm a late-in-life Christian. I got saved just before I was 40 years old. So um, I realized, maybe because of my life experience, that if something was true, it would always be true. And it never occurred to me to find something that's really true. Now, it doesn't mean that doctrinally I didn't stumble around and try to find things and, 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 and come to biblical conclusions. I did. But when there was something that was true, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3, when I read that, I knew that I was going to be a sinner if I had any distance between me and Jesus. So I just tried to stay close to Jesus. When I look at life and the problems that we have in this world, from the very beginning, I looked at them through the lens of God's Word. 
I realized that he was in charge and I wasn't. I realized that if I had an opinion that differed from what it says in the Word of God, that I was wrong. Now, I, I had a lot of pride, big ego, and, and, and I, admitting I was wrong was a really difficult thing. But when it came between me and the Word of God, I knew one was perfect and one wasn't. So I held on to that. And I'm a stubborn, stubborn guy. When there's something that's true, no one is going to talk me out of it. No one is going to shake that from me. And I think in our church culture, especially in the, the time that we now live in, um, you know, there's so much information online and there's so many different opinions. You go to YouTube and listen to 15 different perspectives in a day about the same theological question. Uh, I, I don't do that. I wanted to find out from a primary source what the answers were. And when I found out, when I wrestled with those things doctrinally or theologically, when I wrestled with them, I knew then and there that I'd found something valuable. And I held on to it. I also, when preaching or answering questions on this program, I purposely avoid Christianese. I don't want people to think that, that I think I'm more spiritual than I am. Uh, I just want to Talk to people at their level. And the way you do that is to tell the truth. And if you are consistent in that truth, people are going to get it. You know, Anonymous, we've had the privilege of watching unbelievable things happen in people's lives in our now uh, 24 years this month um, of being here in San Antonio, of, of pastoring this church. Every single good thing that's ever happened has happened as a result of the Word of God being taught and the Spirit of God helping people get it. And that's also true in this radio program. So all I would say to you is when you find something that's true, don't ever let it go. Too many of us are always seeking answers but never finding them. Or we think we find them and we change our mind when something else comes along. And I, I honestly think, Anonymous, that there's too many people who are listening to other people instead of reading the Word for themselves and letting the Holy Spirit give them the ability to interpret and discern. And it's too easy to have our minds changed. So hold on to what's true and never let it go. Now, as you walk with Jesus, you know, it's interesting in the Bible where we're only told uh, to grow in, the, in knowledge in two areas. We're told to grow in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of God's will for our life. There's no um, exhortation in Scripture to just get smarter. No, to grow in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of God's will. And the way we do that is in His Word. It takes work, it takes time, it takes investment. I was complaining today, I'm... I'm preparing for my Bible studies in Isaiah tomorrow. And, um, you know, my eyes are getting so bad that I can't see. And just, I was so frustrated because I just couldn't really grasp what I was reading because I couldn't see it. Not because I got dumb or something. It's just I couldn't see it. And I think it really requires discipline. And I, I think a lot of Christians have lost the discipline of sitting down with their Bible and hearing from the Lord. I think it's important to wrestle with doctrinal issues and to wrestle with questions. And I think, by the way, it's never been more important than it is now because we, as a church, are full-on under attack um, to accept the things that the world says is okay. And too many Christians want to do that. And you know what the truth is? I'm never going to change my mind about these things. Nobody can ever convince me because I've been in that wrestling match with Jesus and found out myself. I also want to say this to you. Thank you. Because um, when, when people say that I make things understandable, that's one of the, the, the two best compliments that I can ever receive. Uh, the other, of course, is somebody say, boy, I don't know what he's saying for sure, but he really loves Jesus. Those are two things. 
I want people to see when I'm teaching or when I'm answering these questions on the program. So I want it to be simple. The truth is, I think Jesus made it pretty simple because we're pretty simple people. And I think sometimes we outsmart ourselves. So Anonymous, thank you for your kind words. At the same time, uh, uh, I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Dwayne. He says, what is the difference between sola scriptura and prima scripture or scriptura? Um, it's it's a, a world of difference, Dwayne, two things. Uh, sola scriptura is, is only scripture. Scripture is the full, final, authoritative word of God. It is the final word on all things in terms of doctrine, knowledge of God, how to live our lives. Scripture, scripture, scripture. I say to our church all the time, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. That's sola scriptura. Prima scriptura is different because that means it's of prime importance, but it's not the only thing that's important. And of course, what we see in church culture, especially here in San Antonio with a city that's roughly 60% Catholic, um, we see church tradition on the same level as Scripture. And the truth is, anything that, that you, you partner with Scripture uh, with is going to take a preeminent role. Uh, our emotions, I've got a question, I don't know if I'll get to it today, but I've got a question. Uh, people are led by their emotions, their feelings, uh, and, and they want to do that because, well, it feels better to believe this or to believe that. Well, if I've got a church tradition that contradicts the Word of God. And to do what I want to do, I hold on to the church tradition. Well, then what I've done is I've just neutered the, the, the authority of the Word of God in my life. And, and I've said this on this program many times, Dwayne, but the decision about what the Bible really is and what it is for you, that's the same thing for everybody, but in terms of how it's going to impact your life and your ministry, what the Bible is to you makes every difference in the world about how God's going to be able to use you. I wrestled with this question as a young Christian because I didn't understand. I, I wasn't raised in church. I didn't understand what it meant that the Bible was infallible. I didn't understand how it could be God's Word when I knew it was written by men. And so I had to find out Dwayne, you finding out whether or not Scripture is the final and authoritative word on matters of life and doctrine and practice, or if there are other things that are on the same level. You see, you can't juggle contradictions. And so if the Word says something and tradition says something else, you've got to decide who's in charge. And the only thing for sure the only thing for sure is that you're going to do what you want to do unless you understand that you don't have that right. The other question that I was just asked, Wayne, about um, uh, being consistent, uh, it's never occurred to me yet to argue with God. I had to dig into a lot of doctrines because I, I, just, I didn't understand them. It seemed inconsistent with my concept of a loving God. But, but I had to start out with the knowledge he's right and I'm not so I need to figure out what's right I need to work through it and when I concluded that the Bible was absolutely the word of God without error without contradiction when I understood that and when I settled that issue in my heart that's when my life changed forever and Dwayne I haven't had a minute of doubt in my 28 years walking with the Lord after I settled this. This this all happened in the first year I was saved, by the way. Um, I haven't had a, a moment's doubt. I've never doubted my salvation. Uh, I've never doubted uh, whether or not I could trust the Bible because sola scriptura, the Bible only, means everything to me. It means that I don't have to guess what God wants me to do tomorrow. 
it means that I don't have to change my opinions on things because the world is moving in a different direction. It means I, I don't have to be confused because something I once believed now doesn't seem to be true. And it, it, it sort of is a comforter. I know the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. But the Word of God is not the Holy Spirit, but, but written by the Holy Spirit. And it has been a source of comfort for me. You know, I believe that we're all sort of born instinctively with a, 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 a need to rebel. We push limits. We test boundaries. Well, when those boundaries and those limits stop moving, you can sort of sit down within those limits and get really, really comfortable in a good way. And that's what I would encourage you to do. You have to make this decision for yourself. I can tell you what it is for me. But you got to make it for yourself, Dwayne. Thanks for the question. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585. Owns your quiet today, and I keep telling you, you guys are much more interesting than I am. Here is our first question for the second half from Becky. She said, what does it mean that God can't look upon sin. Uh, Becky, sometimes we use human language to describe an infinite God. And when we say God can't look upon sin, that just means that it's impossible to be in sin and have fellowship with God. Now, obviously, God looks upon sin. Um, biblically, we know that Satan has access to the throne of God. I will never understand that until I get to heaven and ask. Um, but... Um, um, it, it doesn't mean he can't see it. He sees it all the time. Jesus, when he walked this earth, he was confronted continually uh, by sin and by sinners. Uh, so what it means is that God can't fellowship with sinners in the sense that when we are standing before God, unrepentant in sin, our fellowship as believers is broken. Now, obviously, if somebody isn't a Christian, well, then they have no fellowship with God in the first place. God not only can't fellowship with them, he will not hear their prayers, those kinds of things. Uh, but, but it's just our way, Christian way, a biblical way of saying that uh, to be in the presence of God, we've got to understand we're in the presence of pure holiness. And because we're in the presence of pure holiness, then we have to be holy. The Apostle John says that because he is the light, we who fellowship with him must walk in the light. And it's very simple. To have a relationship with God, it has to be purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Once that's the case, then as we walk through this world and we continue to sin, we, we need to ask for forgiveness and it's not just saying, I'm sorry, and then going on and sinning. We've got to ask for forgiveness and then purpose in our heart not to sin anymore. I don't want to do that anymore, Lord. I just don't want to do that. And if we'll do that, then our fellowship will never be broken. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that means we can walk in the righteousness of Christ uninhibited, knowing that we have full access to the throne of God, knowing that our prayers are being heard. But it requires people purposing in their hearts to live holy lives. Becky, by the way, I think this is one of the real tragedies of the modern church, is we've lost the sense of awe, a sense of fear of God. We've downplayed the role of holiness. You know, uh, and, and I'm the biggest grace guy ever. 
but we've so wrongly taught grace. Oh, God just overlooks your sin. Oh, God forgives you. God loves you. We've forgotten that he is a consuming fire of holiness. And that's why much of the power of the church is long gone. You know, Becky, people are always asking about revival. When can we get revival? Or how do we get revival? The way to to start a revival is to commit your life to a, a, a pursuit of personal holiness day in and day out, walking with Jesus. And two things will happen. Your life will be revived. And then the people who know you and watch you, they'll be inspired to get their lives revived as well. So I hope that helps, Becky. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Carrie. Uh, does believing in annihilationism mean you're not a Christian? Um, Carrie, that's a hard question to answer. And I can tell you that annihilationism, that's the doctrine that says, or the false teaching that says that, that uh, once we die, we just cease to be. We die physically, that's the end of it. We don't live anywhere else in eternity. Uh, annihilationists just cannot believe there's hell. One of my favorite commentators is a guy named uh, um, John Stott. I, I absolutely, his writings have been such a huge part of my walk with the Lord from the very beginning. Uh, and uh, John Stott had a tragedy. His son was killed. His son was not a believer. And he let his emotions change his doctrine. And he became a believer in annihilationism because he couldn't stand the thought of his son being tormented forever and ever in hell. Now, while I understand the emotion, the reality is that we've got to take the Bible on face value. Now, I'm 100% sure John Stott who changed his doctrinal view based on his emotions Toward the end of his life, God is faithful. He will not forget the work that we've done for him, the writer of Hebrews says. I'm sure he's in heaven. I'm sure he's a Christian, a very influential one at that. Um, it's not like he crossed that doctrine line and suddenly God says, okay, now I'm done with you forever. Remember, he gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So was he wrong? Yes, he was wrong. Were his motives wrong for changing what he believed? Yes, his motives were wrong. But he was a Christian. I will say, generally speaking, Carrie, that if somebody doesn't believe in the fact that we are eternal, they're calling Moses a liar, we were created in his image, in large part, that means we're going to live somewhere forever. God is is eternal, and so too are we. From the moment we are born as a human, we're going to live somewhere forever. More troubling is it makes Jesus a liar because Jesus believed in hell. Jesus taught on hell actually more than he taught on heaven. And he was very forceful in doing so, and he was addressing, because he wanted to warn them, he was addressing those who had made him their enemies. And so generally speaking, if your doctrine is so messed up that you believe in annihilationism, then I would be concerned about your salvation. As Christians, it's our job to agree with our Christ. And if Jesus said there is an eternity in hell for those who reject him on the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, if that's true, then we've got to agree with him. Generally speaking, that's such bad doctrine. I would say probably somebody believing that isn't really born again. However, there are always going to be exceptions. Thank you for the question. Here is a call from Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. In our Monday Night Lady study, and Mama Paula taught, and she did a wonderful job. It, it was so, so informative. Okay. And in my, what I have, what I find curious is that okay, we're studying Gideon. He had seventy kids, which meant he had a slew of wives, and a whole bunch of those guys back then had slews of wives. 
and God said they are supposed to do that. How come they got away with it? And do you think there's a danger of present-day churches saying, well, the Mormons do that, but, you know, other mm-hmm. other churches, you know, that, that think they're Christians are going to say, well, in the Old Testament, they, they, they got to have a slew of wives. Why don't we have that now? So how come they got away with it and still went to heaven? I'll get off the phone and, <laughs> and listen on the uh, radio. And it really was Thanks. a super study. I recommend everybody to listen to it if you didn't get there. Bye. Oh, thank, thank you, Cindy. Uh, a couple of things. I, I think it's erroneous for us to to read the stories uh, in the Old Testament and say they got away with anything. Those guys got away with nothing, believe me. Every single example of a man marrying more than one woman, uh, that man had a life filled with pain, filled with confusion, filled with consequences of their sin. You know, God told uh, kings, um, from the beginning, just, just two things. It's It's not like God was really being restrictive, but he said, there's two things I don't want you to do. I don't want you to multiply horses, the idea that, that horses were, were rode in times of war, uh, and he did that to protect them against pride. If they if they multiplied horses, they get to thinking, how strong I am, I have all these horses for chariots, and I've got these the, the best horses in the world, and nobody can defeat me in a, in a battle. And God says, no, don't multiply horses, because I want you to go into battle trusting and depending only on me. Well, every single king multiplied horses. The other thing he told me, don't multiply wives. He knew that the minute somebody started multiplying wives, now by the way, that's an, a custom in the ancient world that wasn't unusual at all. Uh, when there was a powerful king, uh, other less powerful kings uh, from distant places would come and try to make a treaty with that powerful king. And the way they would do that most often was to provide that king one of their daughters as a wife. And that would sort of ensure the deal, ensure the treaty. Uh, It never worked, not for secular people, it never worked for God's people. Why did they do it? They did it because we are fallen human beings. We sin all the time. And what the kings uh, in the Old Testament did, and men like Gideon, who was a judge, not a king, but, but what, what they did is they looked around at the people that they were conquering, um, or in some case the people that were conquering them, uh, and, and they would say, well, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, and this is the way you preserve your posterity, this is the way you have a lot of children. Um, but, but God certainly didn't approve of it, and every single one of them, Cindy, had lives that were overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly filled with pain. So they didn't get away with anything. Now, the question we might ask is, well, how could somebody have multiple wives and be a man after God's own heart? Or how could Solomon, who started so well, have a thousand women in his life? Or how could Gideon be in Hebrews chapter 11? Or Samson, who lived a life of wanton immorality sexually, How could he be in Hebrews chapter 11? They're not in Hebrews chapter 11 because they were without sin. They were in Hebrews chapter 11 because they had faith in God. And their lives were lived in such a way that they proved they believed God and they had great victories. Gideon, in particular, he started so well. He was so humble. And I say all the time, the human condition is such that if we're not in relationship with God uh, our pride is going to get carried away and we're going to do horrible, horrible things and make bad choices. Gideon made bad choices. I mean, think about the young man who said, my clan is the smallest in Israel and I'm the runt of my clan. And the man who tore down his own father's altar because it was so offensive to God, risking everything he took a stand. This was a, a, a guy who started so well. At the end, he started receiving the praises of the people. His head, his heart was turned. And then he started making bad choices. And the truth is, Cindy, whether it's Gideon or you or me, when we stop walking in relationship with God, we're going to all make bad choices. And so the answer isn't try to clean up our choices a little bit, the answer is to walk with God. And so they didn't get away with anything. God made it really, really clear. God brought 
severe consequences on many of them. And it just never, ever, ever worked out. So I hope that makes sense to you and sort of rounds out the study for Monday night. Thank you for your comments, your compliments on Paula. She works really hard to do those things. 340-9585 for your live calls. Let's go to Ray calling on line one from San Antonio. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I haven't talked to you in a while, but... um it's, I, I like listening to your last answer, but it's kind of tough with the with the uh, hanging on the hold thing and the delay. But at any rate, what I <laughs> called about was, and you might have answered it sort of as you as I heard the last of your answer just then. Um, but it was to reference the the start of the second half when you were talking about. Uh, I do what I don't want to do, and I can do what I don't, you know, that part, if you remember what it was going on. And I was thinking that I've I've heard you mention previously that, uh, well, <clears throat> uh, besides just fooling ourselves, like, oh, I'm not that bad, or something like that, or dealing with bad habits, which... Um, you know, overeating or any of whatever it is, um, there there are ways to to deal with that. And the the thing I I don't I don't remember exactly how you had put it, but uh, when when somebody if some when we find ourselves doing what we don't want to do, but are doing it anyway. But if we're not honest enough to say, well, please forgive me, Lord, I, I did that. And it was, you know, my selfishness or however one is to look at that. And I did it because I was, you know, we don't have an excuse for defying God, but it, it, he could deal with, with honesty if, if we, are honest about what we're doing, but it's just kind of, I was trying to listen to your answer just then, and I'm kind of wandering around, so I didn't want to waste any more of your time on that. I don't know if that was clear enough. I'll, I'll let yeah. you see if, tell me you've Thank heard you. enough. Or... Yeah, yeah, I think, I think, I, I think I've got what you're, you're driving okay. at. Thank you. All right. I'm going to hang up good. and listen on the radio. Okay. Good to hear from you. Hope you're feeling well. Um, a couple of things. You know, uh, when, when our problem a lot of times in our relationship with God is that we try to manipulate Him like we manipulate first ourselves and then other people. We want to justify our sin. Well, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I really need to do this, or the temptation was too great, or well, right now I just need to be happy, those kind of things. And we try to manipulate God. And, and the, the thing is, remember, throughout the gospel accounts, we're told that Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men, so he committed himself to no man. He always knows the truth about us. And, and I've made the point many times before that David was a man after God's own heart because he was the best repenter in the world. When he was confronted with sin, he didn't offer excuses. He didn't rationalize things. He just said, oh, against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. And he was sorry. Now, certainly he wasn't perfect. And he didn't get better as he aged. But he was always willing to be honest with God. And I I say often, Ray, that God cannot deal with duplicity. But God will always deal with an honest heart. And the truth of the matter is we're far better off when we're sinning we're far better off say, God, I'm doing this. I know you don't want me to do it, but I'm doing it because I want to do it. Uh, and then we can wrestle with Jesus a little bit, like Jacob did in Genesis chapter 32. Uh, we can then be honest say, Lord, I know you don't want to do want me to do this, but I want to do it. So how can I come to your side? I know I need to. How can I come to your side? And he'll give you the answers. I mean, he'll give you the way out. He, he, he won't ever let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But what we've got to do, and here's what we really don't do, right? We don't hate our sin. 
There are times when we'll sin, we'll say, I'm sorry, God, and yet we're still planning the next sin. We don't take steps to eliminate the sin. We don't take steps to prevent those kind of temptations from overcoming us again. And I think that's the duplicity that I'm talking about. God can't deal with that because as long as our hearts aren't honest, then, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's only when David could say against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, we know he sinned against Bathsheba. We know he also certainly sinned grievously so against her husband, Uriah. But he got to the crux of the matter against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. And when we get that honest, then we've got to deal with our heart. And our heart is, Lord, I know you don't want me to do it, but I just want to. And I've been choosing what I want instead of what you want. And when we get to the place in our walk where we can hate that, then God will deal with us, and then God will forgive us, then God will empower. When we're trying to manipulate God, trying to convince Him of why we're doing the things that we know we're not supposed to do, that's when we find ourselves in real trouble. So, Ray, I think that's where you're going. Thank you very, very much for the call. Before 09585 for your live calls and questions, here is a question from Jordan. Pastor Ron Mormon say they are the true church because they're the only church with 12 apostles, the foundation of the church. How could I respond? Well, two things. One, they don't understand um, what the role of the apostles was. Um, you know, they, they, they have 12 apostles, but they're not the 12 chosen by God, to be sure. And so the apostles, and, and when you get to Ephesians, chapter 2, it talks about apostles and prophets being the foundation, along with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation that the church is being built upon. But the Greek tense is that the foundation has already been laid. You only lay a foundation one time, and the apostles of the Mormon church are trying to lay that foundation again and again. Now, two things, Jordan, that you have to understand. Mormons don't really care about being Christians. They they, they will advertise themselves as Christians because it helps broaden their appeal. But make no mistake, Mormons believe they are the only true church and everybody else is lost. Um, while they won't say that, that's what uh, doctrinally they believe. Um, second thing to understand is that it doesn't matter what they believe about the apostles or about the true church because apart from the Holy Spirit, they have nothing to do with the church. They use the same words we do. They pour completely different meanings into those words. But without the Holy Spirit of God, they can't understand. Normally, when I talk to a Mormon, um, I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. I'm going to say the difference between you and me is your Jesus is a created being. Your Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. The good, the good brother, so to speak. Our Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. So it's really, really important that you don't get involved in their doctrines. I would say, in response to the question, well, you don't know anything about the church. The church is run by the Holy Spirit. And to know the Holy Spirit, you're going to know the right Jesus. You know this issue, and I've got questions that I won't get to today. This issue of of doctrinally needing the right Jesus is the most important issue that we're ever going to deal with. And the world that we live in says, as long as you say Jesus, then you're saved. It's not. You've got to have the right Jesus. Imagine trying to serve somebody named Jesus who told you that you could go ahead and sin. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus that's impotent to save. It's really important that we talk to them about things that matter. Don't get caught in their dialogues. Don't get just ask them questions. Who is Jesus? Well, he's my Savior, they'll say. He died for my sins. Well, the Bible says only God can forgive sins, so is your Jesus almighty creator God? And most of the time they'll be honest with you if, and, and tell you no. 
He is a created being. But he's not the creator. And there's the crux of the problem. They don't know who he is. If you got the wrong Jesus, you have a Jesus that cannot save. And the, the, the issue is heaven or hell. So that's how critical it is to have that. Okay, we've got just two minutes left in the program. Time's gone fast this half. Let's take one more question from Tina. She says, is oneness theology an issue of salvation? Is someone who doesn't believe in the Trinity, can they be saved? Um, it is an issue of salvation. Uh, Tina, I was just talking about having the right Jesus. Uh, if your Jesus is God the Father, if your Jesus is God the Holy Spirit, in other words, if all three persons of the Trinity God are Jesus, then you don't have the right Jesus. And there's a lot of oneness theology, and they, they seemingly elevate the name of Jesus. Uh, it's Jesus only, oneness theology, oneness Pentecostalism, uh, the Church of God in Christ, those things. But it is an issue of salvation, because if you have a Jesus and, and misrepresent his character, if you mess around with the character of God, the way he's revealed to us in his scriptures, then you have a Jesus that is not able to save. That's why it matters so much that we have the right Jesus. And oneness theology is not orthodox. It is heretical. And people who believe that way, now people can start out that way. But when Jesus reveals himself, he's going to reveal himself for who he really is. Hey, good questions. Thanks for taking the time to call. Thanks for taking the time to send the questions. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. It's starting to rain out there, so be careful. I'll see you tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.